May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some of you may remember the last time I preached a few weeks ago, I probably pushed my luck more than I should have done with Rob in ignoring the lectionary readings. And I promised faithfully that I would observe the lectionary readings this time, so I'm actually going to speak to both of the readings that we've had today. But I want to do it in a slightly different way. These readings are normally thought of and talked about as being about the faithfulness of God and an injunction to faithful people to pray to God in the certainty that those prayers will be answered. But I want to take this in a slightly different way because I want to suggest that actually both of these readings actually posit a world which on the one hand is human-centric and on the other hand is God-centric. And that makes a difference. So to do that, let me start with a story. In October 1914, two months after the beginning of the First World War, 93 German academics wrote a manifesto, which they rather grandly, perhaps even pompously, called To the Civilized World by the Professors of Germany. In August of 1914, at the beginning of the war, Germany, as per the Schlieffen Plan, had rolled into neutral Belgium. In contravention of a treaty over 50 years old, signed by three other great powers. In Belgium, meeting resistance, some of their actions have been brutal. In particular, in the great university town of Leuven or Louvain, they burned the great library. They also killed Belgian civilians. It had a huge effect on both the other countries that were fighting against Germany, but also, even then, on neutral powers such as the United States. It was a very bad start from that point of view. So what these 93 professors did is write this manifesto. And it was clearly totally in sync with the war aims of the German government, of the Kaiser, of the Chancellor, Bettmann Holweg, and many others. It said it is not true that Germany is guilty of having caused this war. It is not true that we trespassed into neutral Belgium. It is not true that our troops treated Louvain brutally. It is not true that our warfare pays no respect to international laws. It is not true that to combat our so-called militarism is not a combat against our civilization. It says we cannot wrest this poisonous weapon the lie out of the hands of our enemies. Have faith in us. Believe that we shall carry on this war to the end as a civilized nation to whom the legacy of a Goethe, a Beethoven, and a Kant is just as sacred as its own hearths and homes. For this, we pledge you our names and our honor. At the time, German academics were regarded as amongst the finest in the world. On this list of 93, 12 either had or would win the Nobel Prize. And there were also a significant number of theologians. Amongst them, one called Adolf von Harnack. Von Harnack was a great proponent of liberal theology. He preached a social gospel, 
that the gospel had an effect, should have an effect on the poor, that there was a responsibility there. He was also part of the historical critical movement, which looked at the Bible through an historical lens. He believed that by looking at a country's culture, at its civilization, at its science, at its art, at its literature, that you could tell something about the way the world was meant to be and about who God was. It was a very strong movement at that time. One of the other interesting, important things about von Harnack is that one of his disciples, one of his mentees, was Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th, 20th century. Up until that point, he too had believed in a liberal theology. But when he read this manifesto, he was horrified because he saw where that theology had led. It had led to these 93 of the most distinguished people in Germany signing up to war ends, justifying a war. And particularly with the theologians, particularly with von Harnack, they had done that despite being professing Christians despite talking about the importance of the gospel. And Barth said, we, they, have lost their way. And what Barth went on to do, as he thought about this, particularly as he read the epistle to the Romans, was to construct a different way of looking at things, which was, instead of being this human-centric vision of the world, was a God-centric vision of the world. He said, God is other than us. We cannot, of ourselves, discern who or what God is. Only by revelation can we see a little of God. And the most important part of that revelation was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died to be our Savior. But said that is the only revelation which matters. All of our learning, all of our knowledge, all of our philosophy is nothing compared to the importance of this revelation. And it is this otherness of God which reminds us of the temptation that we have every day to create God in our own image rather than understanding that we may have been created in God's. It is a strong temptation. As Timothy writes, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away into myths. Now this may also sound like a text for our own times. As we talk perhaps about the Christian right, that seems to fit. But, I would remind you that Karl Barth was talking about liberal 
German theologians. This is not an issue of right or left. It is an issue of human beings who are focused on themselves or human beings who are focused on God. And that makes all the difference. So moving forward to the gospel reading, we have the story of the unjust judge. Now, I'm not going to go any further in history than around the time of my birth, which admittedly is now a longer time ago than uh, I wish it was, but there we go. So if we go to the early 1960s, to 1963 to be precise, and we go to Martin Luther King, to the marches in Birmingham, and to the letter from Birmingham jail. Let us try and look at the story of the unjust judge in the light of the story of Dr. King. Of the two characters in the gospel story, the widow and the unjust judge, it's relatively clear that Dr. King is the widow. But who is the unjust judge? Well, it's worth remembering that Dr. King's letter written in jail over Easter of 1963 was a response to an open letter by eight white clergy in Alabama, of whom the lead signatory, it has to be said, was the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama. And what that letter had said from those clergy, the white clergy, was, wait, slow down. You outsiders are messing things up. We had this under control. We have a process. We're dealing with it. But Dr. King said no. Here's what he said. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word, wait. It rings in the air of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. Dr. King approached this from a God-centric point of view. What does the gospel tell us about justice? What does it tell us about our relationship to other human beings? What does it tell us about God and that revelation? And, possibly, arguably, the position of the eight white clergy represents a human-centered position on this. A position, as Bart would have put it, that is influenced by religion rather than by God. Dr. King, in doing this, challenged the unjust judges. And indeed, like the story, he had some effect. But it is this challenge to be God-centric, it is this challenge for us, for you and me, as a church, a beautiful church, a comfortable church, with amazing music, with beautiful worship. Not to confuse that necessarily with what God wants. 
What is it that God asks of us? Why did Jesus die? And these are questions we must ask ourselves, not just today, not just next Sunday, not just next month, but for the rest of our lives. Because if we are to live a God-centric life, which is away from all of the human temptations, it requires constant thought, constant prayer, and an understanding that what we want and what we like does not mean that that is what God wants or what God likes. It's important to say one more thing. There is a temptation in trying to lead that God-centric life to withdraw from the world, to build high walls, to keep our purity intact as we try to do this. But that is also not what God wants. Because in fact, that's what von Harnack and his other theologians did. They privatized religion. It became something which was more interior. It became about being good. It became about essentially private prayer, private worship, a private belief in God. And yet, God does call us as God-centric people to intervene in the world. That is what Dr. King did. That is what we are called to do as well. And again, that is not comfortable. But we have the consolation of Scripture. And we have the revelation of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.